And during the few moments that we have left, we want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome, everybody, to Culture Ghost Pop, episode 18. I'm Steve Strobridge. And I'm Scott Wilson. And we got a lot to talk about this week. But first, let's listen to a little In Living Color, why don't we? The cult of personality. I know your anger. I know your dreams. I've been everything you wanna be. Oh, I'm the cult of personality. I like Mussolini. I could listen to that all day, but I think we probably need to stop for copyright reasons. Um, but, oh, I loved that song back in the day. I love that song. Now, there are certain artists, certain bands, certain songs that are so poignant, so timeless, and, and ironically and sometimes tragically become more relevant as time goes on. Uh, Cult of Personality being one of them. A lot of the Rage Against the Machine stuff. Uh, <laughs> those songs uh, that were done in the 90s still kind of ring true today. So, um, great track, great band. Uh, how you doing, Scott Wilson? Oh, I'm, do- I'm doing just fine, thanks. Uh, just right. doing the usual thing. All right. So, this week, we're going to talk about a couple of things. So, we're going to talk about uh, Sandman, or The Sandman, a, a new DC series streaming on Netflix. And we're going to talk about the first couple of ep- episodes of Marvel's She-Hulk, now streaming on uh, Disney Plus, and then we're going to bring back a segment we did a while back that we called back then "Covers That Don't Suck," where we're going to re- we're going to compare a cover song to the original, and hopefully the remake is as good, or some might argue they like even more than the original. And this was your pick, Scott. So, what cover song are we going to review this week? Hurt, and I think the original was by Nine Inch Nails, if I'm not mistaken. It was and still is, right? And uh, the cover version of that will be done by none other than. Johnny Cash. There we go. So we'll get that later in the program. So do we want to jump into Sandman on Netflix? Yes, we will. Do you want Um, me to read a little blurb that I have queued up from from Google and Wikipedia, or you just want to run with it? Well, yeah, we do need some kind of a synopsis, I guess. So that's the wrong that's the wrong share right there. (laughs) Sorry about that. Let me open up a little share that I have here. So yeah, this comes to us from our friend Google and Wikipedia. So the Sandman. It says the Sandman is an American fantasy drama television series based on the 1989 through 1996 comic book written by Neil Gaiman and published by DC Comics. The series was developed by Gaiman, David S. Goyer, and Alan Heinberg for the streaming service Netflix. It's produced by DC Entertainment and Warner Brothers Television. Probably good enough there. We know it's based on a DC comic from the late uh, late 80s to mid-90s. What else do you know about it? Because I wasn't familiar with it until the series dropped. I've always been had a passing familiarity with it it was a huge series i remember from the early to mid 90s i think it ended in 96 and a lot of its fans consider it to be the best or one of the best take your pick comic book series of all time very highly regarded highly revered i think it's up in the same space with watchmen with alan moore's watchmen uh i think preacher 
by Garth Ennis used to be in that space. I'm not sure if it still is, but Sandman has always been very highly regarded. It was big with like the, it's of the same ilk as like the goth, the goth crowd and people who like early Tim Burton movies. It's, it's sort of in that same space. Very cool. Very good casting. It's dealing a lot with kind of gods and mythology and the different realms, uh, the dream realm, um, you know, hell and these different places and, and the kind of earth is kind of a battlefield for these kind of different gods. I thought that was a pretty cool concept. The fact that gods are fallible. In this case here, we find out that gods are actually capturable <laughs> was an interesting concept uh and the and you know this almost kind of this ecosystem of how everything works together and so when the god of dreams was imprisoned for a hundred years what were the side effects what were the ramifications from that L lots of interesting concepts that are being played out very much dealing with some level of mythology um, you know, so even though it was published by DC Comics, it's not your straight up superhero genre. Although I do understand that in the run, a lot of DC superheroes were interwoven through the stories. I, I heard that Batman was in it and things like that. Um, so, but not, not having been exposed to them, I can't tell you to what degree. But I really like it. It's a very grounded, uh, gritty, somewhat, well, I won't say completely dark, but maybe a gothic noir theme to it um i enjoyed watching it i very much enjoyed it as well even though i don't have an intimate familiarity with the source material but i i like like you i like the setup i like the world that it created i like the characters that inhabited that world i kind of view it as sort of a it might seem like a weird counterpoint to some but i think other people will understand what i'm getting at when i kind of view it through a nightmare on elm street type of lens because whenever I see stories that deal in any way with sleep or dreams, the first thing that always comes to my mind is Freddy Krueger. But this is sort of a different take on some of those same concepts where you have sort of a king or a god in the realm of dreams. And in order for things, or rather you not just him, you have all these different fantasy icons or kings or gods, these beings that are in a position of power and they lord over a certain plane of reality or unreality and in order for things to remain stable in the real world they have to things have to be stable in those different realms the realm of dreams the realm of hell uh, when we see cain and abel the two uh yeah that was that was interesting yeah right but things have to remain stable in all of these realities in order for our reality to main, remain stable so that's kind of an interesting concept right and one character that does make it that to me is a shade of another dc character that i am familiar with but um johanna constantine who i guess is a relative of constantine that would go on in dc stuff that was in the cw series and you know um keanu reeves did a movie on constantine so that const the trench coat cigarette smoking constantine that i think a lot of us are familiar with this is somehow a relative of that constantine so she is also kind of like a um uh, I, I don't want to say vampire hunter, but, you know, she hunts after the supernatural um, demon type stuff that the other Constantine did. Right. So interesting character played by Jenna Coleman, who many of you might know is from Clara Oswald's one of the followers of Doctor Who. We also got to see Gwendolyn uh, Christie play Lucifer, a female Lucifer. I thought was a great choice. And you probably know her as uh, Brienne of Tarth from Gang of Thrones. 
She also played uh, Phasma, I think, the, the Silver Stormtrooper in the Star Wars sequels. Was that her name, Phasma? Or something like that? Phasma, I think so. Phasma, close enough. It rhymes with asthma. Who knows? But yeah, the so the the silver, the tall silver chrome plated stormtrooper right. that, that was um, uh, that. So those are the the main actors that that I recognize from other kind of geeky shows I watched. Uh, I, I'm not familiar with all the other actors in there, but uh, Dream himself was played by Tom Sturridge. Boyd Holbrook played Corinthian, really interesting character. Mason Alexander plays Desire, an interesting role that we see some of that stuff going on. Another character I did um, recognize was David Thewlis playing Dr. Destiny, who I recognized from the Harry Potters. He was the um, one of the professor of the dark arts that turned into a werewolf in one of the Harry Potter series, you know, so um, I do, I do. Rem so some of the actors I remember from other things, but a lot of them I don't. But I really loved um, uh, just the, everything. I thought the casting was brilliant. I think the, the themes were great. How it played out every um, episode was kind of a chapter and it was going through a story and we're kind of leading to this conflict. What happens if Corinthian gets a hold of the vortex that can kind of you know, collide the dream world and the real world and, and shatter these realms and, you know, kind of destroy everything. And, you know, just like we've seen this in like things like Clash of the Titans and other Greek mythology, uh, even though they're all quote unquote gods, they're not necessarily completely pure in their intentions. <laughs> they're all kind of have their own kind of motivations and um, incentives for doing things that aren't always altruistic. Sometimes more self-serving. Um, so there's a lot of interesting characters going on in this. Uh, I watched all of the 10 episodes. There's actually a bonus 11th episode that is, um, I think it's two different stories and one of them is animated. And I haven't watched that episode 11 yet on, on Netflix. Yeah, there's two more episodes. I haven't gotten into those yet, but I finished the initial 10. Uh, finishing out the story arc from what I've gleaned from some of the reactions I've seen online and some of the other interviews that I've, and podcast interviews that I've listened to and the print reviews that I've read some of the fans of the source material have various issues with this adaptation they say that a lot of the edge has been taken out that it went the original source material the original comics went much darker okay and also to pick up on your point about the Greek gods, they said that Morpheus, that's the lead character, uh, that he was more akin to a Greek god. He wasn't as... The, the version of him in the show was kind of passive. You don't necessarily get a sense that anybody would be afraid of him, at least not initially. Okay. But in the source material, he was kind of more petulant. Like, there's a bit... It sounds to me like there's a bit more indifference on the part of these godlike characters to the plight of human beings or human suffering, if you will. That's what it, that's the, the the impression that I get. I mean, I'm fine with that because, of course, like I said, I don't come from a background where I have intimate familiarity with the comics. But go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, sometimes ignorance is bliss, right? Because I've never read the series and never heard of it, I was able just to watch this and say, well, did this take me somewhere? Was this a, was this a good story? Was it a good ride? Did I want to get off the bus at any given time? And that answer was pretty much no. Um, it was interesting characters, an interesting setting. It was entertaining to watch. 
it, it, can, it continued to unfold. Um, nothing was completely obvious or telegraphed on how things were going to play out. Um, and there just there was just a lot of layers that continued to peel back. And I thought it was very great, very good storytelling, great cinema, great streaming series. Um, sometimes I am not a fan of a streaming series simply because I think they end up wasting time where you end up trying to do too much on character development and backstory and the slow burn. And you're never going to make everybody happy, but somehow there's got to be that Goldilocks just right uh, amount of burn, pace, development, and then moving the story. And I felt this was that Goldilocks just right. We, we were, you didn't, nothing was, they didn't dump out the bucket. They didn't spoon feed it to you. It was just a, a continuous trickle that continued to fill the glass um, of fulfillment. And it was, and the pace was good enough, you know, for me. I liked how each episode basically seemed to revolve around a theme. You had one episode where you dealt with death. You have another episode where you deal with going to hell and Lucifer. Uh, you have that. You had that episode at the diner. I know a lot of fans had issues with that one, but that one, that one was starting to bother me. To be honest yeah. with you, that one was really starting to bother me. But I, I, at the end, they kind of let you know why, and it was really interesting. So that one was that one was that was episode five. It was called um, was that twenty four seven. I believe so. Yeah. So episode five was called 24-7. So it was this kind of life and times of a diner. And so the, the, the guy is basically saying, you know, I want, I want to free people. He's got one of Dreams or Morpheus's artifacts that can um, make people's dreams come true. And he's like, our, our dis and he says, I want to create a world where everybody's telling the truth. You know, it's almost like if you think of Jim Carrey's Liar, Liar. What if you could literally could not lie and you just were and you spoke and you did and there was no filter and um and somehow that is what happened to everybody and it just played out in a way that i just felt like okay in the end he, 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 there was a moral to the story but the journey to get there i felt was getting into you know just a, a lot you know it was a lot of sex and violence and this it, it got a little awkward but and so to that point if somebody says they think this was a subdued version of the original source material not seeing the source material i could definitely say episode five really wasn't that subdued <laughs> no it wasn't but i did like the theme that it revolved around about this guy sort of a corruption of the idea of truth and honesty where in his in his mind being free from lies is for everybody to act impulsively like act according to their first impulse and according to their base desires so i did like that idea that was very interesting to see that play out i think the episode went a little too long it just or it felt long it right, rather, yeah, right. Yeah, because it was just it, it got to be really awkward and uncomfortable which it means i guess thematically they hit the mark when you're trying to see how can how you know how, how bad can this idea go? Well, we're going to show you in, in really bad detail. <laughs> no, really bad. No, that's, yeah. Well, that, well, that's the whole idea. I mean, the, the, the storytelling, and I think that there's some influence taken from the old EC Comics Tales from the Crypt in this series and in the, probably the source, the source material itself, where there's this idea of comeuppance. The idea that if everybody's story is allowed to play out to its logical conclusion they're going to be made to answer for their frailties or for the crimes they've committed 
there was a, that sense in the store in the overall in the overall series that everybody who does something wrong or does something to offend the balance that the Sandman himself is trying to maintain will be dealt with accordingly. Yeah, and I felt the Sandman himself, Morpheus, had an interesting journey where he had his reign as far as how the, his realm was and how his control of, was over that realm. And then he was in prison for a hundred years and now he's getting back and he's lost all of his artifacts, which are which diminish his ability. So part of his journey is to kind of just get back his tokens and his tools. Um, but then when he has to go back to his realm, he there's a lot of things he has to come to terms with. And, and he realizes maybe I wasn't the best ruler that I was. And he has learned some lessons along the way about the importance of not only the people who were supporting him and especially, you know, the librarian who kind of stepped in and, and was keeping, trying to keep things going in his absence and things like that. Um, so, you know, he was able to realize, hey, you know what, maybe I kind of was a, a D-bag and let me apologize. And so I thought that was interesting that um, the ability to come to that conclusion and, and evolve to some degree and, and to get some humility and, and a level of, of humbleness um, was an interesting journey for him. And I thought that was, I felt that was rewarding for us as viewers, as well as the characters who were kind of living under his, the tension of his thumb, <laughs> the pressure <laughs> that he right. kept his posse uh, under, you know? So I did, I did like that arc that, you know, our main character actually went through himself. And there were also parts of the series that I thought, thought were surprisingly emotionally affecting. You know, I know some viewers might consider them to be cloying or sappy or what have you, too melodramatic, a bit too much tugging on the heartstrings. But I felt like, especially the chapter revolving around death and just how she goes about her business, how she goes about her job. There was a lot of really effective moments in that. Her taking the sleeping baby to the land of the dead or, you know, tra- helping the baby transition yeah, I thought that was really interesting when they did um, unveil unveil the character of Death, and um, you, you know it, it wasn't a Grim Reaper, right? So you think of the guy in the, with the with the big what they call that that big Sith or scythe, the big stick with the curved right. pointed blade and, and the whole coat and the hood. Um, she wasn't that, and so it wasn't like when you met the Angel of Death. It, it was almost a peaceful. She was there to to help you transition and to take the fear and the anxiety um, away from taking that leap. And I felt that that was portrayed very well. That character was a was a really good character. Um, and, and yeah, I thought that was really interesting that we spent a whole like you said every every episode was a chapter, and some chapters were just revealing and dealing with a new character, a new god, a new player on the field. Um, and what their role is, and and just seeing how they're all these gods, what their purposes are, and what's really important, you know, and and ultimately, I, I think the moral was, you know, humanity needs its dreams. You know, we need to have hope. Yes. Because if everything, you know, if everything was real and everybody just told the truth, and instead of saying, yeah, well, I am a novelist, I am working on a story, and having that dream of maybe one day writing that story, and having that hope to hold on to, that helps you through life versus just saying, no, I'm just a waitress in a diner, you know, and this is, this is it. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, uh, Those hopes and dreams and ambitions are your lifeline, so to speak. You yeah. Know, that's, what, that's what keeps you going. That's what gives you a sense of purpose every day. And again, also that diner episode, I did like the theme of 
there's a fine line between being truthful and being honest and simply acting on your first impulse or simply acting according to your base desires and instincts. And I think sometimes as human beings, those of us who say we value truth above all else or honesty above all else, we tend to confuse that. We, t- we tend to have this very sort of base idea of what that means. Right. So, right. So honesty is something that should be used responsibly, you know, just like a weapon or a drug, you know, drink, consuming alcohol or owning a firearm. It is something that you should, you should use responsibly. And uh, you could be completely honest and not have a cruel intention, but end up having a cruel effect on someone. Or vice versa, you could have had a good intention, but by being honest, listen, I'm your friend, and as your friend, I just want to tell you, you got really bad breath, right? And you're being completely honest, but then that had the reverse effect in somebody, and now they're really offended by your honesty. So as much as the idea of being truthful and being honest, and everybody's saying, yes, I would prefer the world to be perfectly honest, sometimes we have to kind of curve honesty to a degree to help keep our interpersonal relationships going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but so it dealt with so many different concepts. I just thought it was, it was just innovative way to deal with mythology. I would not call it sci-fi. I would call it more fantasy, a little bit more mythology, you know, mythology, um, supernatural, a, t- a taste of horror. Um, there, this, it was, it was a perfect blend of things. If you're a fan of any or all of those genres, I feel it, it it kind of hit some of those notes for me. Also, it's important to say that this project was in development for a very long time because I believe the comic started sometime in the mid to late 80s and ended in the midnight, midnight. Right, from 89 to 96 was the run. Yes, and there have been multiple iterations of it There were at one point or another in development. There was a movie that was supposed to be made, and Neil Gaiman himself sabotage that because he didn't because he it was just a poorly conceived project a poorly conceived adaptation so he's intentionally sabotaged it with the fans because he knew it wouldn't be a good look if it came out okay but it's yeah it's like the watchman it was the same thing with the watchman uh the watchman was in development for a long time at one time terry gilliam had it who's part of the monty who was part of the monty python trope or troop rather not trope and at one point he said this comic is unfilmable because it would take a million dollars per page of the script to bring it to life. So I think Sandman was probably in that same zone at one point or another. But now with everything we have at our disposal in terms of production values and the money being spent on these types of projects, it was the right time to do it. You know, and, and and when you talk about money, because you were talking, we talked about a week or so ago the ninety million dollars that was put into um, Batgirl, and that was just kind of shelved. Um, this is supposed to be a really expensive thing too. And on the one hand, because I am subscribing to multiple streaming services, and you know, Netflix just raised their rates not too long ago, and they're now getting closer to twenty dollars a month. And so, as a person who's got bills to pay, we can sit here and say, "Man, Netflix." I remember when you were $7.99. I remember the $8.99. Then we went to $14.99. Now we're like at $18.99, right? Um, we can complain about 
that monthly bill going up. But when you look at the content, the original content that they are creating, and you talked about the budget to produce something like this with the everything from location to set dressing to costume to casting to obviously the post-production and the visual effects. It, this is had, had to have been an expensive thing. Um, so, and, uh, you know, they just canceled um, the Resident Evil. They, they said one season of Resident Evil and they just canceled it. They're not going to renew it. Right. So um, when it comes to something like this, where they're taking risks and taking chances and bringing us some really creative and cool content, as much as we want to complain about how much does it cost for a Netflix subscription, we should be happy that this stuff is being created and try to support it, support it in a way of a number one by watching it because Netflix is counting those, that data, those metrics, right? How many views? It's like, if you're a YouTuber, you're concerned of how many views you get, right? So Netflix is very savvy to how much, how much eyeball time is on their content and um, where, where, and they where they want to spend more money on you know if they they could have been a great show but if it, a lot of people weren't watching it why continue to put money into it so as, you know as a business I, I understand that so I hope more people will watch this you know we are dealing with the idea of fandom on this show and you and I are both fans so we're part of the bigger picture that is fandom and sometimes fandom can be a double it is not sometimes but fandom is a double-edged sword you need fandom to support things but sometimes the fans of things will just shite all over something because it didn't meet their expectation of what they thought it should be and it can kind of ruin um, projects from ever getting finished or or having sequels or things like that so it's 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 a exciting and a terrible time <laughs> to right. be living in right now because you, you know rotten rotten tomatoes seems to be the measuring stick for things you've got you know reddit you've got social media you've got twitter you've got everybody um and and it's almost like uh, you know i heard recently that the the whole movement of save the snyderverse that could have been um, done through robots, like you know, just yes. like to do the bots. So, so all those numbers and all that stuff could have been fabricated. Um, so, it, so we can use technology to falsely hype and um, lift something up, and we can also use technology to condemn things. So, when people start hating on these shows, it just sours other people's opinions. So, you know, if uh, luckily I'm not the guy who's going to read a bad review and then just say, "Oh, I'm not going to watch that," because random person on the internet didn't like it. I like to form my own opinions, but unfortunately there are those who will go to certain websites or will let social media influence what they do and might not want to watch something because of a bunch of negative reviews from haters. And those haters could also be bots too, from somebody, you know, competition or whatever. So it's just, it's a slippery slope I feel. And I don't know how to get past that. I, I just know I've mentioned I'm trying to be a more open-minded person when it comes to watching things and, and not prejudging them myself, you know? Well, I'll tell you the truth. Uh, critical consensus and fan consensus, they matter to me, but to a limited degree. If I'm sort of on the fence about something, that's more when I'll turn to fan consensus, see what my friends are thinking, see what my social media friends are thinking, see what the critics think, and then decide, do I want to take a chance on this thing that I wasn't too sure about to begin with? But even as a person who writes reviews and who enjoys film criticism, I would advise anyone, you know, don't put your complete stock in what I have to say or anybody else has to say. Right. Don't let the internet be your decision maker. Make your own decisions. Be your own person. 
Right. You know, if you if if you have an inclination to see something based on a trailer, then you know, depending on how strongly you feel about what you saw in that trailer, then you should probably see it anyway. A perfect example. I still would like to see uh, Morpheus. Was that the one that Sony made? The uh, vampire. Mo- is it Morpheus? It was Morbius. Morbius. One, well, yeah. The, the the movie that that everybody says is the worst movie ever made. I still want to see it. <laughs> the one that Jared Leto played the vampire. That's you know somewhat in the uh, Sony verse Spider Man verse with uh, Carnage and Venom and everything else. And see, I'm the kind of person because of the track record that Sony has with the Spider-Man property, which is kind of spotty. There have been some very bright spots and some very low points. So it could go either way for me. And that character by himself, I don't really want to see a solo adventure with that character. I'd much rather see him featured as a villain in a Spider-Man film or as a supporting villain or a supporting character or what have you. Uh, I'm not really into the whole, let's make a movie about the villain himself, but that's my own personal taste. Fair enough. Yeah, but overall, I would say Sandman enjoyed it. Enjoyed it. Um, There was much more positive than negatives, a lot more pros than cons, so I won't harp on any individual gripes I might have had. I I think the whole idea of episodic streaming is just a completely different pacing for storytelling. And um, not everybody's going to be a fan of that. And and that's the problem, that ideally somebody has to be in the driver's seat of how is this going to go? Who are the characters going to be? What is the pace going to be? And and somebody's got to make that decision and just make the, make, make the show. And then fans will hopefully enjoy it. And because we're fans nobody's going to think anything is perfect. But I would say overall, I love, I love for me, there's a lot of things I've seen I have no idea about. So Guardians of the Galaxy, great example. Didn't know what the comic book was about, but they were just great movies. They were entertaining movies. The Sandman didn't see the comic book, so I enjoyed the streaming series, and I would definitely encourage anyone to see it. And I'm going to shut up on it. I don't think I have anything else to say about the Sandman other than watch it. Invest 10 hours of your life, and hopefully you will thank me for it later. Yeah. I've greatly enjoyed it. You know, I was, I won't say I was caught caught off guard because I kind of knew that if they did this series and they took their time and really focused on making it good, it would probably be worth watching, especially given the source material, which so many other comic book readers that I've known throughout my life have this reverence for. So we already knew the source material was worth adapting. I was I really greatly enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to seeing what they will do in subsequent seasons. And it's also maybe interested in, you know, on my Kindle downloading from Amazon. I think they have the first volume for free if you're an Amazon Prime member. And I'm, I'm I downloaded that and I'm interested in going to it now and just comparing it to the show, seeing what was changed. Right, right. And I started doing the same thing with the first run of the She-Hulk, and I'm going to do the newer run of the She-Hulk that you suggested too. I just noticed that um, much like if you're a Prime, if you have Amazon Prime, you've got Prime Video, and that's where you can watch things like The Boys and other great shows. Um, I listen to Prime Music when I'm in the car. They also have Prime Reading where there are, you know, top tier content you can get to from novels to magazines to graphic novels to comic books. So I went ahead and I queued up some She-Hulk 
um, anthologies since the, the new series has started. So I, I read the first issue from those 1978 or whenever it was. It was a lot longer ago than I thought it was. And um, it's amazing how much better comic books have gotten since then because that first issue, the first run and the first issue of the original She-Hulk, it was a great way to kick off the character, but it was just such a... It just kind of rushed you through things. And there were so many tropes in there that I just thought, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself because she holds our next topic. But uh, yeah, um, yeah, I'm just like, oh, the whole dealing with mobsters and this and that, the other. And, you know, it was just, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, comics have gotten a heck of a lot better. Um, do we want to put a cork in the uh, Sandman discussion? Yeah, I think we can. I think it's pretty clear where we stand on it. So, yeah, I, I liked it a lot. And I'm looking forward to more. All right, so we'll move on to She-Hulk then. And let's just go ahead and let me just read what it says on the Disney Plus website. She-Hulk Attorney at Law is rated TV 14. And it says She-Hulk is a new comedy series coming to Disney Plus. It stars Tatiana Maslany as She-Hulk slash Jennifer Walters, a lawyer who specializes in superhuman-oriented legal cases. She-Hulk will welcome a host of Marvel characters to the series, including The Hulk, played by Mark Ruffalo, and The Abomination, played by Tim Roth. The series is directed by Kat Corio and Anna Vallea. Jessica Gao is head writer. Okay, so that is the blurb straight from Disney Plus about what She-Hulk is, obviously based on the Marvel comic, obviously a female version of Hulk. Um, there's two episodes that are out now. I believe the third will drop Wednesday this week as we're recording on a Tuesday. Uh, what are your thoughts and impressions on She-Hulk so far, Scott? I enjoy it so far. It's sort of what I was expecting. It's sort of Ally McBeal in the Marvel Universe or in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, rather. Uh, the tone, I think, is just right for it. People are complaining. Again, anytime Marvel releases <laughs> something, you know, people complain about the, the comedy or the nature of the comedy. I think it fits just fine here. I like the main character. Uh, Jessica is her name? Yes. Jennifer. Okay. Jennifer. Jessica. Yeah, I, I just I like, read it and I already forgot. Yeah, <laughs> I think she's yeah. I, I like her as a lead. Uh, I like the idea that she's sort of a professional that already has a career and has in mind what she wants to do with the rest of her life. And becoming a Hulk is now an obstacle to her goals. Like right, you know, like it's going to make it makes her career almost impossible. It makes any dreams she has. You know, there's no way she can really get them off the ground now because she has to contend with this. And it's funny to see a character, and spoiler alert for people who haven't seen any episodes of it yet, but, you know, with us, when discussing television shows or streaming shows, you should always expect spoilers. I'm just going to say that now on the show. Always expect spoilers when it comes to TV shows. But the idea of having a character who just really doesn't want to be a superhero. You know, I think because most of us who are into this material, we see that as wish fulfillment. We see that as who, who wouldn't want to be a superhero, right? Right. But she's a character saying, no, I'm a lawyer. You know, I already have my career plan mapped out. I know what I want to do in life and it's not running around in tights saving people. Right. Uh, so that I like the, I like the rapport between her and Bruce. I like that Bruce had to kind of become sort of a bohemian hippie in order to have any semblance of peace in life. You know, he's got his little island in Mexico, wherever it is. Right. And, you know, he's drinking liquor and, you know, isolating himself. And there's also, a, there's an undercurrent of sadness to it, of course. 
but I, I just like that. I like the whole setup of it. And I don't mind this version of the character being silly or sitcom-y or whatever complaints the fans may have. It's a fun watch for these first two episodes for me. Absolutely, absolutely. Getting to see Professor Hulk again after the Thanos showdown. Um, the Hulk character that Mark Ruffalo has played has gone through several iterations. When we first see him in the Avengers, we see the raging Mad Hulk who actually was trying to kill everybody on that aircraft carrier. He was just, he was in Hulk mode. He was rage mode. And there was, you know, that's, that's the Hulk we knew from our childhood, right? When the Hulk was the Hulk, he was just a raging destructive machine, but he was that way because he ultimately, he was a, somebody who just wanted to be left alone. I just want to be at peace, but here is the, the tanks are shooting at me and the army's after me and the military is trying to get me. So when can I just chill, right? So, but when he, when, 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 when Bruce Banner hulks out and Hulk first kind of wakes up, it's always under a stressful situation. So the Hulk just emerges knowing that somebody has basically pissed me off and so his first reaction is to hulk smash right so we saw angry hulk in the first avengers movie um and then um and then we just kind of see hulk kind of evolve over time uh and then we see you know we see then hulk gets scared when when thanos smacks him around and he doesn't want to come out and then later on we kind of see professor hulk so there was a whole arc that hulk went on we got to see the hulk um kind of like um, Planet Hulkish from in uh, Thor Ragnarok. So we got to see a lot of different versions of Hulk. But I think a lot of people enjoyed seeing Professor Hulk in Endgame. And uh, to see that continued on now a few years later. And like as you mentioned, he's kind of in his kind of bachelor beach retreat. And it, you can see that he's remorseful. And he, he is um, saddened by the loss of his friend Tony Stark, who helped him set up that laboratory there, right? So you can tell that, you know, they're still living in the post-Endgame era where, um, yeah, there's a lot of loss, right? We, everybody sacrificed, you know, we, we, you know, and so he's dealing with some of that. But he's also now acting as the mentor to her. But his mentorship is based on his experiences where he started off being a, a rage beast that he couldn't control. And he's assuming that's going to be her problem. And in this timeline, in this version of the, of the Marvel Universe, because technically maybe she got the blood from Professor Hulk, that might explain why she's already completely conscious. So she doesn't lose her identity. She doesn't lose her personality. She just gains all the benefits from being Hulk physically but loses none of the other benefits of retaining yourself. And um, that's played out very well. And that's something that, that Bruce Banner wasn't used to because his, his journey in becoming a Hulk, being the first Hulk, was completely different from her. So he's trying to impart all this wisdom and you need to learn to calm down. You need to learn to deal this. You need to, be able to learn to deal with fear and anxiety and all this stuff. And she's like, that's every day's life for a woman. You know, it's like every day we're dealing with fear <laughs> and so anger, yeah. and anger and stress. So in her being a lawyer, she's just used to dealing with stress. So she's a different person than he was when he became the Hulk. Right. And then for whatever reason, she just she's not the same version of the Hulk, too. Also, just because she kind of got the Hulk gift secondhand, right, where he got the Hulk power from a full direct blast of gamma radiation. He is now kind of distilled that through his blood and everything else. And it's kind of settled in and fermented and calmed down a bit where now she's gotten a little bit more distilled version of that Hulk blood than his original blast too. So there's a lot of reasons why she might be different than him, but how she is, is a great character. 
Yes, and I like, even though she doesn't necessarily need all of the, you know, the the techniques that Banner needs to balance himself out, the meditation, so on and so forth. I like how she's still, her struggle mainly to me, for me, seems to be just the impact that this is going to have on her life, not just on her psyche, but just on her, on her actual life. It's like she's able to manage her emotions, to manage her rage, to manage even to manage the transformations itself themselves. Right. It's an at will thing. But she's not able to manage how her employer is going to react to her. Right. How right. The work, how the, the her fellow employees are going to react to her. How her family is going. To, how the world reacts to her. None of the none of those things are in her control, and it definitely has an impact because we see her having to find a new job. So it, it, it's sort of you know, whereas Bruce's issues are largely internal and psychological and, sp- and even spiritual, but with She Hulk, the it seems that the struggle is more externalized if that makes any sense right and every time bruce turned into the hulk a city was destroyed and so he has to deal with that too the guilt of knowing that he indirectly caused a lot of damage and possibly death and everything else even though it wasn't him per se he was still responsible because his alter ego was the one that was enraged and would destroy an entire city so yeah so so bruce banner's hulk is dealing with all good heroes, especially written by Marvel, have complexities to them where it's not just the gilded golden side of having superpowers and fame and everything else. They're complex. They have struggles. They have human problems that make them uh, great characters. So Bruce has got his struggles. She's got her own struggles now, too. The the, the style of this show, I feel, is done well. It is like you said, I didn't even think of Ally McBeal, but she does break the fourth wall. So she talks to the audience it, there is, it, it is um, kind of a comedic theme, but it's still dealing with serious issues. And as you mentioned, at the end of episode one, she loses her job because she had to hulk out to save the courtroom from a uh, celebrity, super-powered celebrity influencer that kind of broke through the wall. So in order to save the entire jury, she had to hulk out and kind of, you know, slap a bitch right knock her down and save the day and so some part of doing the right thing she then of course the case she was trying uh, her big closing testimony that she wanted to prove i can close this case well she didn't get to do that and it became a mistrial right because you influenced the jury because you saved the jury right so of course they're going to agree with you and so that became not only a mistrial where that could have been her shining moment with her closing argument in her defense, but then she ends up losing her job because we can't have this. We can't have every trial now becoming a mistrial because of you. So her, she lost her job and she could not get a job anywhere because of that, right? Until ironically in episode two, we find out where she does get a job and why she gets the job. She's excited about, oh my God, somebody wants to hire me and I'm going to be representing uh, super heroes and super villains, but under the condition that you have to do it as She-Hulk. We want to see super you, not just you. So they didn't really want to hire her. They wanted to hire She-Hulk. Right. You know? And then in a way, that's a, that's a little bit degrading. Don't you want to hire me because I'm a good lawyer? You don't want to hire me because of my skills? Then you want to hire me because of my celebrity. Um, but yeah, she needs her, a job. They want her to be a mascot. They want her to be Ronald McDonald 
of the <laughs> that's, a, that's a good yeah so so in a way that's that's demeaning and degrading but it's also like we all got to suck it up because we need a job right so uh a lot of jobs are somewhat <laughs> demeaning and degrading by yes. what we have to do so um yeah so that is now a new interesting challenge and then i love how we that kind of rolls into meeting who we haven't seen too much of but um a blonsky uh, the abomination and trying to figure out and i would also mention too that every single episode because this was mentioned online every single episode is going to have basically a mid credit or post credit scene so um watch them all and um so we it's because that kind of answered a question of where does this fit into the timeline of things right so we have not seen the abomination since the incredible holt which had um uh ed norton play uh, bruce banner in the hole and that's when the abomination is um is is unveiled and um so we haven't seen him although we did see the abomination in shang chi the ten rings where he's basically now doing pit fighting you know blood sport type stuff where he's doing like you know these fights for streaming and for pay-per-view and to win bets so he's doing this kind of recreational fighting um, and he's evolved because obviously his look is different. So we got to see him there. So, oh, this is what the abomination's been up to. And then that was it. That was all we saw. So now we see her talking to him kind of in a cage and he's asking to be released on, you know, his, his, his parole is up and you, and you get to see a whole new side of this. He's like, yeah, you know, I've been in jail for all these years and I've, you know, you know, he's, he's basically a reformed man. And, you know, he feels bad about what he did to Bruce. And she talks to Bruce because she's like, ah, I got a conflict of interest. This guy tried to kill my cousin. And um, so that conversation with him, I thought was very, made him very vulnerable, very real, very believable. You felt for the guy. Um, and so like, okay, this is really interesting. And, and then we see what happens. So what were your thoughts about that whole kind of leading to the climax of that episode? Hmm. And you're talking about the second episode, right? The second episode. Yeah. This, yeah. Well, I kind of had the feeling that Blonsky was, you know, of course, there's, there's something else going on. He has some other agenda. Uh, I mean, if he didn't, there would be no show, right? Right. So uh, the ending wasn't altogether unexpected. Wasn't altogether unexpected. Uh, I did like, I mean, you know, I like Tim Roth. Tim uh, Roth, yes. Yeah. I thought it was definitely a bright spot of the Incredible Hulk, which is it's not a bad Marvel movie, but it you know it's not one of the more remarkable or well remembered ones. But he was definitely, I think, he brought he always brings Tim Roth always brings a lot to any role he plays. Right, so it, right. It was just great to see him and and the charisma he brings to it, and you know the complications that this is going to bring to everything, and. Also, to the relationship between Bruce and his cousin, where you know she has to call him and like you know she's acting as though she's asking for his blessing when really she's she basically just saying FYI. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this for you. I'm like taking the case, but I want you to know I'm taking the case. <laughs> right, and it's, and I think it also adds an interest, interesting dynamic where Bruce may think he's gotten over this. You know, he may think that he's better equipped emotionally and mentally to deal with whatever transpired between him and Blonsky, but he may be deluding himself. Maybe Blonsky will do something to show him that, no, I'm still very much a threat. I'm not somebody that you can really trust. Right, right. So if he is still a mischievous individual, he's been biding his time. 
and he's now saying everything you want to hear about how I'm a changed man. I have seen the light, yes. right? And so I, and, and now I want to be free and I just want to live my life in peace. I've learned my lesson, never do it again, I promise, right? And when something like that, and when that becomes the setup, your, your next obvious question is what could possibly go wrong? Right? Hey, and also, what, what will be the, if something does go wrong, what will be the consequences? What's the consequence to doing this, that? Will this force Professor Hulk maybe to have to rethink his approach in terms of, hey, maybe being, being this balanced sort of Buddhist monk <laughs> type of green giant? Right. Is Matata. Yeah, maybe it's not always the best thing. Right. Um, and so what we saw in that episode were a couple of teases where um, then more in the post credit scene, we, we now know where the timeline is because she's like, yeah, I want to take the case. I want to I want to represent him. And then they show the scene of him doing the pit fighting and the, you know, the cage fighting that happened in Shang-Chi. So the timeline for episode two is right before the events in the Shang-Chi movie of the Ten Rings. So we figure out that timeline. But also when she calls Bruce and she's having that conversation and Bruce is on the phone, we don't realize it at first, but he's on a spaceship and he's flying out. Oh, yes. Um, you know, so he's having a conversation on his cell phone. Um, so you think he's just in his, you know, he's at his bachelor pad down on the beach. And then we, when we kind of pan back, we see he's in a spaceship and he's flying off. So where is he going to go, right? So now we're setting up another um, adventure for the Hulk. And I think this is going to be possibly planting the seed for like a World War Hulk or, you know, like you're more of your planet Hulk or these bigger um, type Hulk stories that, that have taken place. So I think, you know, the Hulk is flying off to another adventure that might end up being on the big screen. That was just kind of a foreshadowing there that we saw. Um, and of course, what could go wrong? Well, somehow Tim Roth got out, right? Blonsky got out and uh, the Abomination is now doing MMA for pay <laughs> just so ridiculous and silly but again perfectly in keeping with the proceedings it's just that's a funny idea like what if some of these super powered you know individuals and mutants people on super soldier serum or mm -hmm. have you what if they decide to get involved in professional sports what would be the consequence right because technically that's what would be considered a um uh a, 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 a drug what do we call that the the drugs that the athletes yeah. are not supposed to take the performance enhancement drug right what lance armstrong was guilty of what the olympic athletes end up getting disbarred for right so the super serum fold so super soldier serum say that 10 times fast is definitely considered to be a performance enhancing drug. <laughs> that's also funny that the idea to me that Blonsky would actually break out of jail and that's what he decides to do. <laughs> yeah, of all the things I can do, let me go make a quick buck, right? Who, who like on, TV, on TV, is it an underground circuit? Or it was like an underground circus, but they were streaming it. You know, people were placing bets on streaming and stuff. So it's kind of like a pirate uh, sporting event, you know? And it's also funny to me that any, I can't imagine any mixed martial art human mixed martial artist getting to an, getting into the ring with a guy that has scales and fins right well he was fighting wong so it was almost like they were fixing the fight because wong was able to do all the stuff where he could teleport back and forth and when he did the punch it kind of went through the portal and he ended up punching himself and stuff like that so he wasn't fighting immortal he was fighting a superhero um so he was fighting wong from uh, doctor strange right so yeah, yeah i mean the, all those little touches are they're amusing those all those little uh, things that they do 
twists and turns that they take and the, and the fact that the show is self-aware in that way that it it kind of knows that it's silly and it invites the viewer to indulge the silliness like i think all those things work they, they they actually do for this show but i think you've mentioned this and i'm seeing some headlines now too where people are basically saying hey listen marvel everything you do doesn't have to, have be, to be funny funny yeah. right you can do and and that's where you know that's where i thought when netflix had some of these franchises like daredevil and the punisher and luke cage um i, I don't i won't even talk about iron fist but um some of these things that were you know your street level characters definitely much more violence the language was there um and and it was still it was a marvel property and at the time that those movies existed because there wasn't a disney plus right so um so these were technically characters that could have they weren't and they weren't implied or denied that they were part of the mcu they were taking place during the whole phase one and two of the mcu um, but they were streaming on on Netflix, and it was good Marvel content that had humor, but it was they, it wasn't comedy oriented, you know. Um, and so I think that might be a concern is that because the the over the top humor is working, that that might just become the trend. And I'm hoping that's not the case. I don't think it will be the case long term. Uh, I mean, for me, the humor in Thor: Love and Thunder was a bit much. Yeah, I think I think it's a bit more suited to what She-Hulk is is, and with She-Hulk, I'm not sure because I've I have yet to start reading any particular runs or arcs of She-Hulk, but it seems like even the source material material the character was not taken deadly seriously. It seemed like there was mm. a lot of sort of self-effacing humor in that. So, but again, I mean, maybe I'm wrong about that, but. I'm fine with the show for what it is right now. I think right, and I think some of the some of the criticism early on was what did the CGI look like and how how her green just looked like it was just not it was a solid green. There was no hue to it or anything else. I think as it's playing out on screen, nothing is striking me as bad CGI right now. I'm gonna say this much, and I was one of the guys complaining about that stuff, but look, I think we all need to just be at peace with the fact you're never going to see a photorealistic hulk people it's just not going to happen all of these hulks have had you know a little bit of issue with either the uncanny valley or just not looking quite photoreal and it's not going to be photoreal it's a fictional character and i you know i think that we kind of need to our expectations need to be tempered with some of these things now you know we're we're expecting real life well you know no, nobody can conjure up a real hulk to film <laughs> so I, I, I'm fine with the special effects. Where's Lou Ferrigno? Put those green stockings back. Yeah, right. Yeah, we can go, we'll <laughs> green fright wig, and yeah, we can go back. Yeah, to that. yeah. Um, no, but not, nothing. None of the visual effects struck me as out of place. And when you say that you can't have a photorealistic Hulk, I would say that Professor Hulk, the current Mark Ruffalo Hulk hybrid, looks pretty natural and organic to me. Well, it doesn't call attention to itself. It's not like when it, see for me. I don't like the notion that if it's not photorealistic, then it's bad special effects. I don't really subscribe to that notion per se. I don't, I don't look at things within that paradigm of it has, to, it has to look quote unquote real to be successful as a special effect. If that right. makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. 
but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give both the episodes that are out right now two thumbs up on both episodes. I enjoyed them both. I am excited to see where the series is going to go. Um, I, and, and what's happening, it should be obvious. It's being stated by Marvel officials and it should be, we should be able to, to imply and infer this anyways. But these characters right now are being teased to us and revealed to us on streaming but they're all going to make their way on the big screen too right. anybody that we see she hulk just like uh miss marvel so uh, you know the the 10 episodes eight episodes whatever it was to set up that character and, and and bring her from zero to hero and tell that origin story uh disney plus was the perfect platform to do that now we know who she is now we know what she can do and what her potential and what her you know uh, what what she's capable of and things we don't even know she can do yet. So we are ready. The seed has been planted. The appetite is wet for more Miss Marvel. And there's going to be a feature film, The Marvels, right? So I think the She-Hulk is going to be the same thing. This is the origin story. This is uh, character building, introducing us to the character and, and getting us to that conclusion of this is, get ready, folks. This is who She-Hulk is. You've seen, you've seen a journey. And, and, and now we're just getting started. Now that this action figure has been assembled and is on the shelf, you're going to be able to have some fun stories to play with this in the future. And they're going to do that on the big screen. Um, so there is there is no doubt in my mind, uh, besides the fact that I've read it from multiple sources too, that you know Marvel's basically saying, yes, Mark Ruffalo has been quoted as saying, yes, any future Avenger type movie will include the She-Hulk that she is going to be in all of them now because phase four we need new avengers right so um she is definitely ended up being a new avenger so this series is to basically establish her in this universe and and, and set her up for not only more seasons season two season three but setting her up for movies right i think it's initiative always been that sort of cross-pollination between the films and the book i mean the films and the television shows right and we've never gotten to really see that yet so i think that well, I would. Feature. So where we did see it, to a degree, was when Agents of Shield was on. Yeah. Did you ever watch Agents of Shield? Yes, I wasn't religious with it, but I did watch. Yeah, well, we tried to stay up with it, and I really liked it because Phil Coulson was the character. And this is what's interesting: when that sometimes characters become larger than they were ever ever originally written. You know what I mean? He was kind of the annoying guy in the Iron Man movie. You know, I, I need to talk to you for a minute. I need to talk to you. You know, and then finally in that final scene, yeah, we're from Strategic Homeland. You know, whatever the hell it was. And she's like, "That's a really long thing," you know. And <laughs> but you know, he was just kind of the nerdy, annoying guy that kept uh, trying to get Pepper Potts' attention. And later on, he becomes you know a, a sacrificial martyr that was the you know let's get the let's get the Avengers to rally and to get their stuff together because you know. Phil Coulson got killed because he died for what he believed in. And that was supposed to be the end of Phil Coulson's story as he was written on this on the page. But because so much fans loved him, they started an entire series, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And what I loved about that when it was happening was it was kind of the glue because we didn't have Disney Plus. We didn't have the overdose and the overkill of Marvel content. We only had a new Marvel movie once, if we were lucky, once a year, sometimes once every two years. So we had an entire season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. that would either pick up after the, a movie or lead into the next movie that would come out. And so it kind of was the continuity thread um, of some ground level stuff 
that was happening in the MCU that we got to see on a fairly regular basis on an episodic way that was done very well, I felt. Um, they kind of had a no superheroes on the screen rule where there really wasn't any of the, 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 you know, the top tier um, A-list heroes in there. There was just, you know, agents and, and other kind of lower level mutants and other powered type stuff. So I thought that was pretty good. And um, there were some good stories in there. And it was good to have something to hold on to to keep your interest going while you're waiting for the next big Marvel movie to come out. So I think that was the first time it was done, and that was done fairly well. Yes, it was. I mean, the few episodes that I saw, I remember they had, uh, what's the guy's name? Crusher Creel, the Absorbing Man. Okay, where he could like turn into whatever material that he touched and stuff. Yeah, and I, I like that iteration of him. I thought it was a pretty good iteration iteration of him. But I yeah, didn't really so, I didn't really watch enough of the show to really have a educated opinion on it. Okay. Yeah, my wife and I would we tried to watch it as much as we can when when it was on and trying to keep it keep up with it as it was playing out in the timeline between the movies and things like that. Um it was pretty good. Nick Fury made a few cameos, things like that. It was one of the last things that Bill Paxton did before he died. Um so yeah, good stuff. Good, good characters in there. Um, so I think that was maybe laying some of the seeds and the groundwork for what episodic live action in the MCU could be. And obviously Disney Plus is just taking it to a whole nother level with all these plethoras of series that they've had. But yeah, definitely in, in, encourage people to watch She-Hulk. Not that you needed us to push you over the edge to make that decision. <laughs> right. All right, so the last thing we're going to talk about this week is a, uh, a concept that I brought up a while back that I just came up with the clever name of Cover Songs That Don't Suck. And I think maybe a better name for this might be Cover Song Comparisons, right? Comparing a remake to an original because it happens in movies, it happens in TV shows, it's definitely happened in music over the generations. And this week, as we mentioned at the top of the show, this was Scott's pick, this was Scott's choice, but he wanted to do uh, the song Hurt by Nine Inch Nails, and then the cover song that was done by Johnny Cash. And Johnny Cash did a couple of albums not long before he died, and um, all of those, he did a lot of interesting cover songs. Um, and another one was um, a, a Soundgarden song, Break, Break My Rusty Cage. Really good version of that one, too. So there's a, there's a bunch of songs that he did that he covered, it, as only Johnny Cash can. And I think this is a good one, right? So I, I pulled these from my own music library. And, and it, interestingly enough, um, the version of the, the Nine Inch Nails version I have is not the studio album version. It's actually a live version that Trent Reznor did with David Bowie. So this is actually a variant on the original that I'm going to play um, about a minute and a half of. And then that'll bleed right into the, um, the Johnny Cash remake of that. Are you ready for this, Scott? Sure thing. I just want to say before you start that the first place I ever really listened to the Johnny Cash version was in the trailer for Logan. And it oh. was, and I felt that it would suit that trailer so well that I actually bought it off of iTunes. I listened to it over and over before that film came out. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Well, here we go. Here is a variant of the original and then Johnny Cash's cover. Myself today 
to see him I still feel I focus on the pain The only thing that's real The needle tears a hole The unfamiliar sting Try to kill it out But I remember today to see if I still feel I focus on the pain the only thing that's real the needle tears a hole the old familiar sting Try to kill it all away But I remember everything What have I become? My sweetest friend Everyone I know goes away So what did you think? The the first version was similar to the original, but slightly different with the value-added bonus of having David Bowie do the first verse. Hmm. I mean, I still prefer the Johnny Cash version, honestly. I just like I like how bare bones it is because the emotion really comes through. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah and that's in, – in, in so these the, – the, now we call that unplugged or acoustic or stripped down, and um, – 
that's kind of like my childhood because my dad was a musician and he had a, like a bar band and stuff and they played songs. So I heard a lot of cool songs like in the 70s and the 80s, but they were just played on acoustic guitar by maybe two or three guys. And so I would hear songs by the Eagles, by Jimmy Buffett and things like that. So I grew up listening to basically my dad's versions of a lot of these songs. And then when you finally hear the studio version and the album version, it's like, oh my God, there's so many more instruments. There's so many more things. And right. you would think that that makes it better. But yeah, sometimes just the just j just give me the core, right? And and definitely Johnny Cash, you felt all the emotion, and that's a really interesting song because when you think about it, you know he's basically saying that every you know I'm a screw up and I ruin every relationship of everybody I've ever met, and and a part of it is because you know the heroin, you know the needle tears a hole, all that kind of stuff, yeah. right? So you know he's trying to take away the pain of his life, and all he's doing is creating more pain. Right. I will make you hurt. So it's 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 a very emotional song. Um, and it's and I think Johnny Cash's version is very poignant, too, because these were his last things he was doing. And I'm pretty sure he knew because of his age and his health that these were going to be literally the last things he did. So I think some of that you can hear in his voice, not only the emotion of the song, but just the emotion of life. You know, this is this is my goodbye. These are my farewells to the world. These all these songs and, and covers that he did. You kind of feel that in there. So it, it's just there's there's a lot more levels and poignancy to it than just the emotion that we hear. I think when you look at the context of when he did it in his life, um, I think that adds a little bit more weight to the emotion of it as well. Right. Yeah, because I was not familiar with Johnny Cash or his story around because i remember when this song first came out well his version of this song first came out and that was not, during a time where i was not familiar with his his catalog his image or even knowledgeable about where he well, was at that time in life yeah being a white guy it's required by law to know who johnny cash is <laughs> he is like he is like the uh he's the whitest white guy hero for for all white guys but uh he you know they, they called him the man in black and if you and there's a great movie on on you know the ring of fire movie starring uh, joaquin phoenix that, yeah you know, that was very acclaimed when it came out and and um and you, you see there that even though he wasn't the typical rock star or the Elvis that you would think of, I think everybody struggled with drugs and addictions and problems in their life. So you see early on, Johnny Cash did have some of those problems in his life. But um, Johnny Cash was known as the man in black. That was kind of his thing. He was kind of a rebel outlaw uh, cowboy kind of country-ish singer. But you know, it was his biggest, you know, his whole album, Live and False in Prison. You know, he did an album where he did a whole concert and performance in a prison filled with convicts that were lifers. You know what I mean? And that's who that's who he chose to perform for. And that's his album. And this famous line was, you know, I shot a man in Reno just, just to, watch, to him watch him die. I mean, that's the kind of guy he was, you know. And, you know, when you listen to songs, he did like a boy named Sue. It's a story. You know, it's a story about uh, a father trying to make a boy become a man and learn the lessons in life. And um, I think some of the greatest songwriters and some of the greatest songs are telling stories. And Johnny Cash did that. Uh, a lot of Jersey boys do that. Like Bon Jovi is great for telling stories. Bruce Springsteen was great for telling stories. So he's a guy who told stories, but his stories were like the truth. You know, the world is not a pretty place, but I'm going to tell you, <laughs> I'm right. going to tell you all about it. Let me, I wrote a song about it. You want to hear it? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I grew up knowing all about Johnny Cash. And so part of it was he was, some of the songs were just on the radio and he was a pop star, but he was bigger than that. He was a dark horse. He was uh, an 
anti-hero. He was counterculture. He was a lot of things to a lot of people. Um, so um, I've grown up knowing about Johnny Cash my whole life, you know, and well, uh, well finding out certain things about him. There's a, there's a parallel between country and Western music and rap music that I think doesn't always get acknowledged in that both genres to some extent celebrate the outlaw, the American outlaw in different ways. Uh, I mean, because from what I gather, the outlaw was a focal point of a lot of country and Western music at one point. So, you know, his Johnny Cash's whole story seems to be a testament to that. Yeah. Yeah. That he was a rebel. Yeah. Yeah. Real life, real life rebel uh, and hero, hero to most. So, uh, yeah. So that was a good pick. And uh, yeah, it was good hearing it. Very emotional. I would definitely say look for uh, look for Johnny Cash covers uh, wherever you get your music, iTunes, Amazon, wherever you get them, Napster, LimeWire, uh, wherever that may be. Um, get your music, give it a listen. Uh, great episode. Uh, we have a lot to talk about, but we're trying to squeeze things into roughly an hour-ish so show. So there's more to talk about in future episodes, like uh, House of the Dragon is now streaming on Amazon. The much-anticipated story before the Game of Thrones, right? About the whole Targaryen, Targaryen dynasty, where that all began. Like we learned about Daenerys Targaryen in Game of Thrones, how she wanted to reclaim the Iron Throne because she felt it was her birthright because Targaryens ruled the Iron Throne and and um, all that stuff for hundreds of years, for millennia, when, when dragons roamed the earth. And there was a lot of kind of foreshadowing to this in Game of Thrones where you, you see the scene where they're down there like in this basement and you see all the dragon skulls and you say, wow, they used to be so big. And then now as time went on, the dragons got, dragons got smaller and smaller. The skulls became the size of like a cat from being this giant dinosaur sized skull to a cat sized skull. Just kind of telling the, tori- the story of how humanity kind of neutered and castrated and just you know, diminished the power of the dragon. And that was where their power came from because they were, you know, they had the dragon's blood and they, you know, they ruled with the, with the power of their dragons. And so it's an interesting story um, that takes place roughly 200 years before the timeline of game of Thrones. And it leads into game of Thrones. Um, So I think we're going to see some interesting things. The most notable character in there is Matt Smith, who was from Dr. Who he plays kind of a rebel Targaryen. Um, so we're going to see there's there's lots of nods. We're seeing there's some of the houses that are there. So we're, they're already talking about the veil and we've seen the Red Keep. And so a lot of the different locations and stuff that we became familiar with in the Game of Thrones, uh, these, these, these places have existed for thousands of years, even in that timeline. So we're going to see earlier versions of some of these things. We've seen Baratheons. There's a Baratheon in there. Obviously, we know Robert Baratheon was in season one. Um, we know he was killed by um, the, the former hand of the king was killed by the mad king, you know, so there's a lot of the stuff which was a Targaryen. So there's a lot of this backstory that we're going to see. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. I, I've seen episode one. I enjoyed it. But I think once we get a chance to kind of uh, consume and digest a few of those episodes, we might do a mid-season review on that as your time allows you to see that, Scott. I'm looking forward to that. Um, I want to do episode talking about our personal histories in our lives with video games. So hopefully we'll do a video game episode soon as well. Still looking forward to doing our, we talked about hip hop. I'm just going to remind you, I want, I want us to start working on that history of hip hop. I want to hear the history of hip hop, according to Scott Wilson. So I'll be looking Got forward you. to that episode. So uh, yeah, lots of things to, uh, 
to talk about on future episodes of Culture Goes Pop. So thanks again, Scott, for this week, for being here. My pleasure. Thank you, everybody, for listening. You know, you can catch us. Hopefully you're listening to us as I say this, so you know we're a podcast and we're available wherever most podcasts are found, like on your Apple, your Google, your iHeartRadio, your Spotify, your Stitcher, your Anchor FM, Amazon Music, uh, lots of places you can catch this show. You can send us an email to our email address, which is show at Culture Goes Pop. Thank you, Scott Wilson. Thank you, sir. And we will see you guys on the next episode. Same here. <laughs>